We spent a long time in the first two chapters of this letter, and we might ask why we did that. Why have we spent so much time, invested so much time into these first two chapters? Well, part of the reason is because the inspired author lays out the groundwork in those first two chapters for what is coming after it, for the theology that's coming after it. And as we think about those two chapters we've looked at and think about what it's argued, there's much there. There's a great amount there, but it's important stuff. We've tried to argue that there's been uh, really three distinct sections that we've looked at. First of all, the exordium that opens the letter, which speaks of the majesty and honor of Christ, His glory as creator and sustainer, that He is the exact imprint of God. He is the exact glory, the apogosma, if you will, of God Himself. And so we see that He is glorious, the deliverer of His people. And the second movement begins right after that, which... Throughout the end of chapter 1, the, really the majority of chapter 1 and the majority of chapter 2 argues that Christ is greater than the angels. And we looked in depth at that argument, that He is more glorious than the angels. Why? Because they are created servants and He is the reigning Lord, the very Son. And so, of course, the one who rules and reigns is of higher honor and glory than a servant. That is just obvious. Chapter 2 takes that further to say He is not only ruling and reigning, but He is actively the high priest of His people. In fact, He had to come and fulfill Psalm 8, if you will, become lower than the angels, be crowned with suffering, even death, and then be exalted that He might represent His people. A biblical principle is given to us that the one who is interceding, the one who is consecrating must be of the people He's consecrating. He had, to become, he had to come and be made like us if He was going to be our faithful and perfect high priest. And He succeeded in that. It tells us that He was a faithful and is a faithful and merciful high priest. And so again, that all is laid out for us here. But in the middle of that, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we have that third section, which is kind of an interesting, almost, it seems, interruption. It's not an interruption. It's not fully a digression, although it does digress some, but it furthers the argument because it reminds us of why this matters. It tells us that we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we've heard. Pay attention. Focus on what you've heard. Focus on the message you've received. Why? Because there's a danger of drifting away. If you don't stay anchored to the truth, you will drift away from the truth. And that's a conscious effort we must make to stay anchored to resist drifting away. But it goes beyond that, doesn't it? It explains why this emphasis on angels. It tells us, For if the word spoken through angels, this is the Sinai covenant mediated by angels and by Moses, if that covenant, it says here, proves steadfast, it was held, it was upheld, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. In other words, if the law given at Sinai had legal authority, it was enforceable. If it brought consequences for those who neglected it or broke it, then here's the question. How much more serious will those consequences be for those who ignore or neglect this covenant made and mediated solely in Christ? The Son, not a servant, the Son. Now as we think about all these things, we come to chapter 3. And it's going to begin a slightly different section, but tied very much to what's come before. And you'll see that, by the way, if you just look at the first word 
of chapter 3. Therefore, we've spoken about this many times, haven't we? Look at what's before it, and that's going to lead into what we're seeing in chapter 3. And so let's read it again. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony to those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now as we think about this, I've got just two points I want us to think about this morning. First of all, an important connection and reminder. And second of all, an important comparison and contrast. And I pray we'll see both those things as we look at our text this morning. So beginning first of all with our first point, an important connection and reminder, and beginning with that first word, therefore, it's important to recognize this builds upon what's already been given to us. Those things that I just mentioned, those three, if you will, movements in the text in the first two chapters that have established much of the argument so far. And notice it says, based on what's been said of Christ being glorious, Worthy of worship and honor and praise greater than angels. Therefore, think of this. Now, it's interesting to think about this tying back because many people find this to be a mystery. In fact, one commentator I read this week said it's a mystery how this is supposed to tie back to what came before. And I'm thinking, well, that's a strange thing to say if you're following the argument. And we've tried to take our time with this and look at what is being said here. What was the purpose of all this that was said about Christ being greater than the angels? We made the point, if you go at this from the direction of making the argument that there is some kind of angelic worship going on, then chapter 3 makes no sense at all. But if you see the argument the author is trying to make is that you cannot return to the Sinai covenant because it is not as great as the covenant in Christ, then you see that the way he began to argue that was, let's look at the mediators. Let's look at the fact that angels mediated that old covenant at Sinai and Christ is greater than the angels because He is the reigning Son and Lord and they are servants. Now, I don't think it takes a a great bit of skill to see that that's the argument because the author tells you that's the argument. Again, simply return to that warning and exhortation at the beginning of chapter 2 and he says it. For if the word, meaning the old covenant spoken through angels, Prove steadfast. What's his argument? We've been through it a dozen times, haven't we? If that old covenant is mediated by angels, and if Christ is of higher glory and esteem and position than angels, then the covenant mediated in him is greater than the old covenant. That's the entire argument. And he's made that point. Angels are less glorious and are of lesser position than Christ. Therefore, His covenant is greater than their covenant. Now, I'm just going to ask you here to think logically for a moment, if that is what he's trying to argue. If we're right about that, then you would think, okay, he's conclusively argued that through chapters 1 and 2. Where would he go next? And we would think, well, 
that covenant at Sinai wasn't singly mediated, but doubly mediated. God mediating through angels who mediated to Moses on behalf of the people of Israel. There were multiple mediators. And if we were right, we would assume that he would then go on to prove that Christ is greater than Moses. So where does he go? Christ is greater than Moses. One of the ways you can check your interpretation is ask, if I'm right, what would you argue next? And if it's what's argued next, it's a pretty good check that you might be going the right direction. And so again, as we've walked through this text and we're looking at this argument that Christ is greater than the angels, He's greater than Moses, and the covenant that He solely mediates in Himself is greater than the covenant they mediated. Now why is that important? Because this is being written to a group of Jewish Christians that are thinking about returning back to the synagogue. That are thinking about going back to the old covenant. And what he's trying to say to them is, you can't. You can't. They're not of equal glory. Once you've tasted the greater, you cannot go back to the lesser. Because you're walking away from Christ. Now that's what's being argued here. And he makes this point that Christ is greater than Moses. Well, how does he establish that argument? Well, let's look at it for a moment. As you come to this chapter, the author states here, as he did previously, that Christ is glorious. Now notice he calls him, he gives two titles to him here at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, Therefore, speaking to the audience, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, we're going to come back to that, consider the apostle, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Christ Jesus. Now, uh, it's unusual for us to hear Christ referred to as an apostle, isn't it? It's unusual to hear him referred to that way. And yet, if we were to think about it, an apostle is one who is sent out. We've been going over that uh, in Matthew on Sunday nights, that uh, the disciples are called in chapter 10 apostles because they are sent out by Christ to represent Him and to preach the message of the kingdom and to heal the sick and to do all these miraculous works that Christ alone had been doing prior to that. They are sent out. Well, can this be applied to Jesus? Well, He is sent out, is He not? He was sent on this mission by His Father. You can just turn to the high priestly prayer of uh, John chapter 17 and you'll find it multiple times that he says this. Verse 8, For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. What's he saying? In this incarnational mission, you sent me forth into the world. Not on my own timetable, but to be obedient to your timetable, to be on your mission, Father. He says it clearly even there where we just looked. And in verse 18 of the same chapter, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. I was your apostle on this mission into the world, and now they are my apostles in this world. And then verse 25, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known Uh, that you sent me. These disciples that I have know that I was sent by you. Three times in this chapter, Jesus refers to himself in apostolic terms, that he is one who has been sent by his Father on this mission. That is all this author is saying. That Jesus is this amazing 
apostolic figure sent by the Father into the world on this mission of salvation outlined in that exordium of chapter 1. The one who by himself purged our sins. The one made lower than the angels, crowned with suffering. Right, This is the one we're speaking of, the one who came on this mission. And I don't really need, I think, to go back through and establish his high priesthood. It's what we've been looking at for a long time in chapter 2. He had to become and made uh, like us and under the angels and to suffer and all these things we've been looking at that he might be a perfect, faithful, and merciful high priest in the things pertaining to God. If he didn't suffer, he couldn't have that role. That's why the author has no problem theologically saying that Jesus had to be made perfect, complete in this way. If he's going to be our high priest, he has to be made like us. He has to suffer like us. He must intercede on our behalf. If you look at the end of chapter 2, you see these things. Therefore, verse 17, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's been tested, he's been tried, yet without sin, and now he's able to represent us and give aid to those of us who are tempted, which is all of us. He's able to fill the role as our high priest because he's walked as we've walked. He's suffered as we have suffered. He's been tempted and tried as we have been tempted and tried, and yet he without sin. All this important theology for how he is also the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so all of this is given to us here. And so we see that it speaks here of Christ. Now, I want you to look for a second at this, the recipients of this message because it's very important to keep these things in mind. There's little things given to us along the way we have to remember, have to be mindful of. This author is speaking to a people that he refers to as holy brethren. Now, this is very important to keep in mind when we come to these warning passages we find throughout Hebrews. He is taking for granted these are brothers and sisters in Christ. He's speaking of it as if there is almost no doubt they are partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, this does make the warning passages a little more complex, doesn't it? Because these warning passages speak as if you could lose your salvation. Be cast out of the people of God. But I think if you go back to what we looked at in that first exhortation warning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we spoke about what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, this is like a doctor giving a warning. You're not listening to your doctor. You're not paying attention to the doctor who has your best uh, end in mind and in heart. And you're not listening to him. So he gives you a stern warning to say, listen to me. Listen to what I'm saying here. This is serious. I think if we think about it as we walk along, if you take that perspective and say that this is a man who says, you all are my brothers in the faith. What does it say of you if you walk away from Jesus? It says you were not partakers of the heavenly gift. You were not holy brethren. It would say you were not among us as John says, it shows that they were never among them. I think it's a warning to get their attention to say, think of what the testimony would be if you walk away. It would be you were never amongst the people of God. And so again, I ask you to keep those things in mind 
as we walk through it. But now think of what is said here uh, in the terms of this reminder. It's told to us here that we need to think about how this connects back to chapter 2. It's a reminder that just as the argument was made in chapter 2 about Christ in uh, comparison and contrast to angels, so there's now going to be a comparison and contrasting with Moses. And so I want us to look at that now, a wonderful comparison and contrast, if you will. Um, maybe a wonderful uh, comparison and, a, and an important contrasting with Moses. So again, he is not only referred to as an apostle, but he's also referred to as a high priest. A high priest. Now, if you were to say for a moment to a Jewish Christian, who are you put in mind of as you think about one who is a deliverer of the people of God, one who was sent by God on a mission of salvation, and one who intercedes on behalf of his people, who might you immediately think of other than Moses? He fits the bill, doesn't he? Was Moses an apostle? When God appeared to him in the burning bush, did he not say, I'm sending you back to Egypt? You're going to stand before Pharaoh himself and say, let my people go, for I've heard the cries of my people, and I'm going to answer them. I haven't forgotten them. And you're the instrument I'm sending, Moses. And of course, Moses wants nothing to do with it. But God says, you're going to go. So he is an apostle. He is sent by God on a mission. And it is a mission of deliverance. The greatest picture we have in the Old Testament of the salvation offered in Christ is the Exodus, isn't it? That's why so many of those pictures in the New Testament are tied back to it. Even referring, as Paul does, to Christ as our Passover lamb. Clearly, using that imagery of the Exodus to say, just as God delivered His people from bondage in Egypt, God is delivering His people from slavery and sin and death. So again, it seems very appropriate to immediately think of Moses. Moses. Now you might argue, wait a minute, Moses wasn't a high priest. He wasn't a high priest. The high priest was Aaron, and that is true. God appointed Aaron as a high priest. But all you have to do is go back through those five books of Moses and look at the number of times that it is Moses interceding on behalf of the people of Israel. That it is Moses saying, Oh Lord, don't do this. <laughs> don't wipe out your people. What will it say of you, Oh Lord, if you wipe out your people? In fact, the text we're going to turn to in just a moment, it is Moses, uh, it seems, interceding. And so again, uh, we'll, I want you to keep all that in mind. Again, they're in mind of Moses. Now the question is, is Moses of equal stature and glory and honor to Jesus? Now, I don't think any Jewish Christian would argue yes, but you could act as though he is by returning to his revelation, returning to the covenant that he mediated. You could, in effect, uh, be acting as though Moses is of equal honor and glory to Jesus. But notice what it says here, because it does not make light of Moses. It says that Moses was faithful in all God's house. Moses was faithful. I can think of very few things you could ever say that would speak in a way that would give more honor to someone than is spoken of in terms of Moses here. Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Now, what is this a reference to? If you have your Bibles, 
turn back to the five books of Moses. We're going to Numbers chapter 12. And something astounding is said here that this author is asking us to remember. Now, I'll read the beginning of the chapter, but if you just remember, Miriam and Aaron are always upset, always complaining, always begrudging what God is doing. And here we see it again. Numbers chapter 12. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? They're kind of trying to disqualify him or knock him down, aren't they, from the position God has given him. Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. The Lord heard their grumblings and complaining. Now the man Moses, listen to this note, was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. Now I want you to hear the testimony that the Lord gives in regard to Moses. Then he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. That's an honorable way to communicate, but listen to the difference with Moses. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face. Understand the honor that the Lord is giving to Moses here? I speak to the prophets through visions, through word, through dreams. I speak to Moses face to face. And we read about that, don't we? Where Moses even had this glow of glory when he was in the presence of the Lord about him. In fact, Paul uses that very image in 2 Corinthians to make a difference known, a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New. The glory that fades away of the Old Covenant and the glory that remains and excels in the New Covenant. Again, we see it here. If we were to continue, he says, even plainly, he means speaking to him, plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. And why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Do you understand? I mean, the Lord is saying, I have given such honor and privilege to Moses. How dare you speak against him? Do you have no fear to stand before the Lord and speak ill of him when I have given him this position of honor? I mean, that's a very high thing to be said of a human being. And yet it is said of Moses. And again, as you see there, you see Aaron, the high priest of the people, going to Moses and interceding, right? He's going to Moses and saying, Oh, my Lord, please do not lay this sin upon us. And you get the realization there are moments like this where Moses is really the intercessor before God. The one who is allowed access if you will, as God says here, face to face. That is the passage that Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, is asking you to think back to. Now, I want you to think for a moment, this is no insult to Moses. There is no way we should read what the author is saying here as dismissive as Moses. He is asking you to remember what was said of Moses in the Old Testament, that Moses stood With God, face to face, God revealed directly to Moses. God gave Moses honor. And Moses was faithful. Now if you look at what is said there, it's really interesting. 
because he says that he is faithful in all his house. We might ask for a moment, what is the house? Well, the author interprets it for us, doesn't he, in verse 6. But Christ as a son over his own house. So again, what is this house? Whose house we are. The household is the people of God. Moses was a faithful servant amongst all the people of God. God gave him honor and privilege and position amongst the people of God, but he was amongst the people of God, not over the people of God. Christ is over the people of God. But before we go to that contrast, I want you to go back for just a moment and think about that wording. Moses, faithful in all his house. Moses is not over the kitchen. Moses is not over the stables. Moses is not over the bedroom areas or something like that. He's over it all, he says. He is the one who is managing, if you will, serving in all areas, if you will, of the people of God. Not ruling over, but serving in. Now what does that put you in mind of? A position of dishonor? No. A position of almost the highest honor imaginable. Where would a Jew reading this naturally think to go? What position is being described here other than steward? One who is given stewardship, a position of honor amongst the people of God. That is the position Moses had. He was like a steward. What would that put you in mind of? How about Abraham's honored servant and steward, Eleazar? The one that when Abraham had a mission, he said, Hey, I need a son. I need a wife for my son. Eleazar, go and find one. In fact, in that very passage, it says, Eleazar, his eldest servant, the one who was over his whole household. But a servant serving in that capacity. It's clear that once the son uh, is recognized, Isaac is over the household. It's a different level of honor. And that brings us to that contrast we want to talk about here. Because Moses is faithful. Yes, Christ is faithful. They're both faithful to God. But one is a servant and the other is Lord. That's the difference. One is a servant and the other is Lord. Moses is a servant amongst the people of God, serving God and serving His people. Christ Jesus rules and reigns over His people. We are His people. We do not belong to Moses. The people of Israel did not belong to Moses. They belonged to God. That's the mistake they continually made, isn't it? Give us a king that we might be like every other nation. Give us a king. It's not enough to belong to God, they thought. We need somebody impressive. Give us Saul. Give us Saul. My friends, we belong to Christ Jesus, the one who is faithful. Yes, both faithful, but he is of higher honor and glory as a son is of higher honor and glory than a servant. This is not hard to understand. In fact, I would just simply say to you, the reason we can cover so much ground is I just ask you to refer back to what we've been arguing for like six months, right? Angels are servants. Christ is Lord. For to which angel did he say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? To no angel did he say that, for they are created servants. So, was Moses ever put over the household to rule and reign? No. 
but Christ is the Son who reigns over the household of which we are a part by grace and faith in Christ Jesus. For we are His people, His household. He rules and reigns, and He purchased us by His own blood. You see, that's what the author is saying. So Moses was a glorious and faithful servant, yes, but Jesus is counted as being worthy of more glory than He. More glory. Now, what's the point we're trying to make here this morning? What's the point we're trying to make here? I think we can go backwards to find the answer. We can go back to where we've been to find the answer because the entire point that we went through in chapter 1 was that angels are mediators. Christ is greater than angels, and therefore the covenant that was made in His blood is of higher glory and honor than the covenant that they mediated. But they were only one half of the mediation of that covenant. The other mediator was Moses. And so again, logic tells you we have to establish that Jesus is greater than Moses. The author is telling you, no matter how revered Moses is amongst the people of God, he is not Christ. He is not Jesus. And therefore we must recognize that Jesus is greater than Moses. But that brings us to the same analogy, doesn't it? The exact same analogy. Because if Jesus is greater than Moses, and Moses is the mediator of the Old Covenant, then the covenant mediated in Christ alone, the covenant in His own blood, is of greater honor and glory and effect than the covenant mediated by Moses. So what does that tell us? You can't go back to Moses. It tells us simply that. You can't go back to Moses, no matter how comfortable it would seem to be. No matter how much less the persecution is in the synagogue, than the church, you cannot go back. Because Moses would tell you, you cannot come back. How do we know that? Well, look what the author says. He says in this very text, listen to it again. He says, for this one has been counted worthy, verse 3, of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, uh, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. Now look at that next phrase. We could have easily skipped over. For a testimony of of those things which would be spoken afterward. What's Moses' main purpose? Well, this is a common theme in Hebrews. Shadows, signs, pictures in the old covenant of what is to come fulfilled in the new. Even Moses himself's purpose was to give a testimony to one like unto him. Right? That's the promise, that there's a prophet coming one day. Like Moses, to him you should listen. Moses is not the end-all and the be-all. Moses, as a liberator, as an apostle, as an intercessory figure, is not pointing to himself, but he's pointing to Jesus. Just as the covenant he mediated pointed to the new covenant in Christ. Is that not what Paul says? The telos, or end of the law, is Christ Jesus? Again, all of it points forward. Moses points forward. If you went to Moses, Moses would say, take your eyes off me. Look unto Jesus the captain of our salvation. Look unto Him. 
I am not the end. He is the end. In the same way, since He is less than Christ. Honorable, glorious, yes, but of lesser glory. Significantly lesser glory than Christ. The truth is this covenant in Christ is greater. The truth is Moses didn't even make it to the promised land, did he? Jesus not only makes it, He guarantees all His people will make it too. The author says, look unto Jesus, not Moses. Don't return back to the synagogue. Because think about this. I'm just going to use the same argument in chapter 2 that was used of angels there. If that covenant mediated by Moses, we'll say this time, carried with it sure punishments for those who violated its laws and content, those who neglected what it offered, how much more serious will the consequences be for those who neglect this covenant, this infinitely greater covenant? As Moses says, excuse me, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that the glory of this covenant is such that it makes the old covenant look as if it had no glory at all. It was glorious. But in light of this covenant, this glorious covenant, and in the same way, Moses, honorable, Yes, he spoke with God face to face. And yet, my friends, Christ is far more glorious. So if that old covenant carried such serious penalties and consequences, what will become of us if we neglect this salvation? I think it's told to us, isn't it? Because it's worded in this way. How shall we escape? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? My friends, if you turn back to Moses, the author is saying, as great as Moses was, how will you escape the wrath that is coming upon you? What would it say about you? It would say you're not even with us. You were not amongst the people of God. You never received the heavenly calling. And the wrath of God abides on you. My friends, hear the warning and recognize our only hope is in Christ Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Trust in Him and Him alone, for the salvation offered in Christ is truly glorious and great. Amen.